with the Coastline family. Well, it's week four of the gospel series. Every week uh, we've started the series. The whole series is basically dissecting the most famous gospel scripture in the Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16, and taking each word and kind of digging behind the meaning of each word to pull out what it's really all about. And so we're going we're gonna to go into John chapter 3, verse 16, invite you to read aloud with me as we've done every week uh, the most famous passage. And if you need the scripture, you can follow along on the screen or in your worship pack. All of the notes in the scripture are in your worship pack with the different points of the message this morning. So I encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Uh, with, there's a lot of scripture this morning, and I want you to uh, stay connected with where we're at in this message. So I invite you now to read aloud with me, John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the word perish and what Jesus had to say about a literal Hell, and I encourage you, if you did not hear that message, go to the iTunes podcast, download it, go to our website, listen to it. You can get the notes there. Last week, we talked about what it meant for eternal life, the new earth, the future heaven where we will spend all eternity. Today, I want to talk about this one word, gave. What did it mean for God to give his son to us? And what did it produce in our life? Now, the obvious, uh, the obvious result is our salvation eternity in heaven. But I believe the gospel does much more than simply salvation. I, I really believe if all the gospel was about was salvation. As soon as you accepted Christ, God would kill you and take you home. But he leaves you on planet earth. Why? Because we have a mission. We have a purpose. There is a reason we are alive. And discovering that purpose is part of the gospel. And the gospel produces three very powerful results in your life that I want to talk about this morning. And I believe people of all uh, levels of faith, whether you're just starting out in Christianity or new to Christianity or you've been a Christian for a long, long time, I believe there's three things the gospel does that we all need at a deeper, deeper level in our life. Now remember, the gospel is not moral conformity. Uh, that is religion. The gospel is also not self-discovery, that's secularism, it's something entirely different. Let's look at what it is today. We're going to be studying out of Isaiah chapter 53 and Isaiah chapter 54 this morning. The first thing the gospel does in your life is it restructures your heart. It produces the restructuring of your heart. What do I mean? Look at Isaiah 54 with me. Isaiah 54, we're going to look at the first five verses. Sing, O childless woman. You who have never given birth, break in a loud and joyful song. O Jerusalem, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. Enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home, and spare no expense. For you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle, resettle the ruined cities. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth, the sorrows of widowhood, for your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the holy one of Israel, the God of all the earth. Now, what does this mean? The verse one, sing, O childless woman. Have joy, sing, childless woman. Well, to understand this, this chapter, you have to understand the significance of childbearing to this ancient culture. See, there was a very significant thing when it comes to, to having children and bearing children to this culture. First off, the more children you had, the better your family did. The more children you had, the more your shop produced, the more your land produced, the more you would prosper financially. Why? Because of more labor. 
Well, the second thing about childbearing is that if you didn't have children, when you got old, you would literally starve to death if you didn't have children to care for you. So if you wanted to have three children when you were at the retirement age, you needed to have between eight and ten because of the lifespan of people during this time period. And then the third thing you got to realize is you needed to have more children than the tribe next door because if your tribe has less children than the other tribe, they would overpopulate and they would eventually conquer you and take you over. So having children was very, very significant. You never saw a woman back in this culture, this day and age, sitting around the well talking to other women saying things like, you know, I think I really only want to have one or two children. They would look at her like she was crazy. What, do you have a death wish? Not only is that bad for you and your family, but you will doom our entire tribe. So a woman who bore a lot of children in this time period became a national hero. And somebody that was childless was a disgrace. They, they were a scourge upon the people. Uh, so, and, and the problem with this is the natural tendency of the human heart is we love as human beings to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. We'll take something good like a, like a child, we'll turn it into an ultimate thing like an idol. You know, even Rachel in Genesis chapter 30, you see her in this very same situation. Genesis 30 verse 1, when Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister and she pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Give me children or I'll die. She's saying, give me children. I don't have any value. I don't have any worth. I don't have any significance without children. If you don't give me children, I will die. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, wow, in those ancient cultures, they really oppressed women, didn't they? And absolutely, but I'm glad you are thinking that because it gives me a chance to ask you another question this morning. How come do you think in those ancient cultures you never saw women struggling with eating disorders? You never saw women struggling with it. It it was never like self-image as far as the way they looked, uh, issues that they dealt with. See, what you have to understand is every culture, from ancient cultures to modern cultures, we all put, you know, men and women in front of men and women. This is what marketing and ad agencies uh, make millions of dollars doing. We put in front of people certain objects, certain things, and we tell people, if you don't have this, you don't have work. If you don't have this, you don't have significance. If you don't live in a certain neighborhood, you're not going to have value. If your kids don't go to a certain school, you're not going to feel good amongst your peers. You're not going to have the same value or the same worth. That other, if you don't drive the right car, or carry the right purse, or wear the right clothes. See, all cultures oppress people. In these ancient civilizations, and even in many non-Western modern civilizations, they had collectivist idols. You know, there were idols that were for the collective good of the whole. They were collective good of the entire society, family, children, population. In the modern culture we live in here in North County, we have individualistic idols. What do I mean? Career, money, uh, 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 beauty, the way you look, the way you dress, the car you drive. See, we take ultimate, we take good things and we turn them into ultimate things and they became Idols. And what Rachel is saying there in Genesis 30 is she's saying, listen, if, if you don't give me children, ch- childlessness is psychological and it's social death in this community. I, 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 I will psychologically and socially die without children. And what does this tell us? It tells us if you build your identity on anything more than 
the relationship you have with God, the, the love for God, that God himself, and you don't get it, then it is psychological and social death. We live in a culture, we, we, we have terms like keeping up with the Joneses. Why? Because if we don't, it's psychological and it's social death. And it's almost impossible living in North County when everyone else is going after objects and going after things and going after status to not be enslaved by them and go after them like everyone else is. But I said almost. Why? Because God gives us a way out of all of this. God, and that's what the gospel is all about. There is a way to have inner emotional and cultural freedom apart from things and materialism. What is it? Look at verse 1 again. Sing, O childless woman. Sing, O childless woman. This is radical. If you think about what God is doing here, this is absolutely radical. He is calling women to an inner emotional freedom from shame, a cultural freedom from these external uh, oppressive structures. God is saying, listen, I can get you to sing without children. I can get you joy and value and significance without children. Look at the paradox of this passage. I mean, God is being deliberately paradoxical. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. That doesn't make any sense. How can the childless woman have more children than the woman that lives with her husband? You have to understand what children represent. See, in this culture, children represented value. Children represented significance. Children represented honor. Children represented beauty. That was your social status. God is saying, listen, I can give you a value. I can give you significance. I can give you a beauty apart from children. And what's the source of all this? What's the answer? Verse 5, for your creator will be your husband. See, God's trying to restructure her heart. He's trying to restructure her value, restructure her significance, restructure your creator will be your. What does this mean? Well, if, if you study the Bible, if you study Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament, what the Bible is saying is, is every other religion, every other world religion, every religion says try, 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 try hard to live up to certain standards, to live up to certain codes, to live up to, to certain uh, 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 ethics. And if you work really hard, then at the end of your life, you're going to have a positive verdict. That's what every religion says. Christianity is absolutely different. Christianity is the exact opposite. Christianity is a legal standing. You know, it is a, when you accept Jesus Christ, that is a legal standing. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. The perfect illustration is marriage. Think about it. What is marriage? Marriage is a legal agreement, but it is also an intense love relationship. Marriage is both. It's a love relationship and a legal agreement. Before you take your vows on your wedding day, you don't have any of it. As soon as you take your vows, you have it all. That's what the Bible is trying to communicate about the gospel. It is a legal agreement and a love relationship. We have a love relationship with the Father and a legal agreement through the blood of Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. Christianity offers what no other religion dares to offer. When you join God through Jesus Christ, now, now, that moment, just like on the wedding, when you make that vow, you, you are in that legal standing of marriage. When you accept Jesus Christ, now you have the applause of the Father. Now you have the delight of God. Now you have his praise. What is he saying? God's telling this woman, don't look to anything else. I can be your value. 
I can be your significance. Your creator will be your husband. That's far more valuable than what culture says you need to have. Think about it. What greater value can you possibly have than to be delighted in and sacrificed for by the creator of the universe? See, look at all these other things, good things, and we turn them into ultimate things. We t- you know, in our marriage life group this week, one of the things we talked about is how it's not bad things that destroy most marriages in America. It's good things that destroy marriages. It's good things out of order. What are good things? Career. Career is a good thing. It gives you an ability to provide for your family, but if you get your career out of whack, how many know that good thing becomes an ultimate thing and destroys a marriage? Children are good things, but if you allow that child to have a a, a better relationship with you than your husband or your wife does, then you've taken a good thing, allowed it to become an ultimate thing, and it ends up hurting a marriage. And that's what it's talking about here. God's saying, listen, the only way you're going to find freedom is when your heart rests in me. When you learn to rest in God the way your physical body rests in bed after a long day at work, when you learn to savor God the way, the way you would savor a cold glass of water in a desert, that's when you're going to have this, this cultural freedom, this inner emotional freedom where your heart can sing. It's not going to enslave you anymore. All these things, these good things, these, these things that we allow to become ultimate that say if you have that, you'll have value. If you have that, you'll have significance. God is saying, I can give you a freedom from all of that. Well, how does he restructure our heart? It's an understanding the second point. The second thing the gospel will produce in your life is the removal of your sin. The removal of your sin. And for this, I want to go back a chapter to Isaiah 53, probably the most famous chapter uh, next to Psalm 23 in the entire Old Testament. Isaiah 53, let's look at verse 4. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And we're going to look at the rest of this chapter, but, but I, want you to, I, w- I want to say a few things about this chapter. Look at the suffering servant that this chapter is talking about, this man who suffered, that was beat, that was wh- And what I want you to realize about this chapter is this is probably one of the most famous chapters in the Old Testament. It's also one of the most shocking chapters in the Old Testament because it appears to contradict all other aspects of the Bible. And it's also one of the most controversial and debated chapters uh, in the entire Hebrew Scripture. I mean, they have literally debated this chapter for centuries on, on whether or not it was authentic, whether or not until the Dead Sea Scrolls, they really didn't even know it was authentic. I mean, it's been debated about, it's been controversial. Why? Well, first off, the violence of his death. Is shocking. I mean, all throughout the Bible, it talks about, you know, opposing violence and, and, and living a life of peace. And here we see the violence of this, 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 this uh, servant's death. But he was pierced for our rebellion. That word pierced in the Greek actually means pierced through. It means to take an object and literally push it through somebody's body from one side of their body out of the other side of the body, describing the most excruciating form of pain you can imagine. Pierced. 
And this doesn't make sense. This is why it was so debated and so controversial because all throughout the Old Testament, we have all of these prophecies about the Messiah, this this Meshach, this prince that's going to come and bring salvation and come and bring deliverance and come and bring peace. And all of a sudden, you know, all throughout, you know, see chapter 42 and chapter 47, chapter 50, we talk about the salvation this Messiah is going to bring. And then all of a sudden in chapter 53, it takes a turn. And, and this, this man who's going to be in peace is now a victim of violence. This person who's going to right the wrongs of the world, the person, this Messiah, who, who's going to get rid of all injustice is now a victim of injustice. And it contradicts everything we know about the Messiah. It, it contradicts everything the Bible uh, talked about of, of this, this coming king, this coming lord, this coming ruler that's going to right the wrongs of the world. The other thing that's shocking about this chapter is the vicariousness of his death. Verse 10 says, yet when his life is made an offering for sin. What? A human offering for sin? You see, all throughout the Old Testament, it was acceptable for animal sacrifices. When you sin, when you messed up, you had to make an atonement. There was a blood sacrifice that, that had to happen. But all throughout the Bible, the Bible never condones human sacrifice. The, the Bible never thought of human sacrifice as being acceptable and all of a sudden we see now human sacrifice going to occur and then the last thing that's shocking about this is the voluntariness of this that he willingly gave his life that he willingly allowed himself to be given as the punishment for the people see why is that shocking because all throughout the bible it it, it teaches against suicide it teaches against suicide, and now we got this guy who, who basically is committing suicide by giving himself as punishment for other people. How do we make sense of this? See, some people, they, they try to reason it out as this is poet, poetry, this is figurative language, that, that this isn't an actual person, but this represents the nation. This is Jerusalem it's talking about, the, the, the Israelite, the nation of people, but that doesn't make sense. I mean, think about it. How can the nation suffer so the nation doesn't have to suffer? This has to be a person, and it all depends on who it is. See, it all depends on who it is. Centuries later, in Acts chapter 8, we read a story about an African. Centuries later, an Ethiopian who had gone to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, and we find him returning back to Ethiopia, this, this African diplomat, he was a eunuch, reading the scroll of Isaiah, and that tells us a lot. Well, what, what does that tell us? Well, first off, for somebody to travel from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, that was enormously long. It was incredibly uh, dangerous, and it was a terribly difficult journey. So for this Ethiopian, for this African to make this journey tells us he must have been extremely spiritually dissatisfied. He must have been extremely dissatisfied. The other thing we, we read into the story is that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he would have had to been turned away from the temple, rejected. Why? Because he was a eunuch. He had gone through castration. See, one of the uh, prices to work for the royal family in Ethiopia is you had to be castrated. You had to be a eunuch to work for the royal family. Well, Mosaic law teaches us that nothing deformed, nothing diseased can go into the temple of God. So after making this incredibly long, incredibly difficult, uh, dangerous journey, we see that he's turned away. See that he's turned away, not allowed to worship because he's basically a reject. He's been castrated. He's been deformed. 
That's a terrible price to pay. Think about it, especially in this ancient culture where descendants meant everything. That's a terrible price to pay to work for this royal family. And Philip finds him. The Holy Spirit leads Philip, and he runs along uh, a side of him. And this is what happened. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. I'm reading in verse 30 of chapter 8. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this, and this is Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from him? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or somebody else? So from the beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus Christ. That's the answer. That answers all riddles. This man was Jesus. It couldn't have been suicide. See, we're not allowed to commit suicide. It's a sin for us because we don't own ourselves. We don't own our life. Our life belongs to God. But this was his life. He could do whatever he wanted with it. See, the the, the vicariousness, the voluntariness, the, the violence of it. This was Jesus laying himself down as the son of God, as a substitutionary atonement to forgive us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, forgiveness is a form of suffering. Forgiveness itself is a form of suffering. And what do I mean? Well, it simply means this. When somebody wrongs you, it's pretty obvious how you suffer. But what isn't as obvious is that forgiveness itself is a form of suffering. Think about it. When you want payback, when you want to pay somebody back and you refrain from paying them back, then you're the one that suffers. When you want to give it to them and you don't give it to them, then you're the one that suffers. Forgiveness is willingly living with somebody else's, living with the consequences of somebody else's sin. I want you to think about it. If that's true for us in our limited sense of right and wrong, our limited sense of justice, then how much true is that of God? This is God suffering in order that we might be forgiven. Because if God wasn't going to pay us back for the wrongs that we did, then God was going to have to pay. God was going to have to suffer. And the eunuch realized that God went through this violent, vicarious, voluntary death to forgive him, and it absolutely changed his life. You know, we we read through history that it was this Ethiopian eunuch that brought the gospel to the nation of Africa, to the country of Africa. Why? Well, we said earlier that the gospel is not moral conformity. It's not self-discovery. If you have a moralistic view of God, that God is this holy, demanding person, that, that just, you know, this evil principle waiting to smack you every time you messed up, that type of relationship with God is not going to move you to tears. It's not going to galvanize you. It's not going to light you on fire. But at the same time, if you have a relativistic view of God, and God just loves everyone and just accepts everybody no matter what, then also that relationship's not going to move you to tears. It's not going to melt you. It's not going to galvanize your faith. See, what melts you, what galvanizes you is when you realize God was so holy that he couldn't just shrug evil off. But he was so loving that he couldn't punish you for it. Think about that. God was so holy, he couldn't overlook your sin, but he was so loving, he couldn't punish you for it. And not until you've been humbled down into the dust because of how holy God is, 
that he had to die for you, and not until you've been affirmed and loved into the sky because God is so loving that he was glad to die for you. Can you be humbled out of the pride that makes you look down on other people and humbled out of the inferiority that makes you look down on yourself? See, what, 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 what our desire here is, is for you to have a gospel self-esteem. See, a lot of people have a low self-esteem or they have an arrogant self-esteem. We want you to have a gospel self-esteem. What is that? A gospel self-esteem means you are incredibly humble because you know you're a sinner, but you are also at the very same time incredibly bold because you know you're loved. That's what a gospel self-esteem, a gospel self-esteem doesn't allow you to look down on other people because you know you're a sinner, but a gospel self-esteem doesn't allow you to look down on yourself. Why? Because you are loved, you are accepted, you are affirmed. God was so holy that he couldn't overlook your sin, but he was so loving he couldn't punish you for it. And when the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ becomes intellectually coherent, and existentially melting to your heart, that's when change happens. That's when the removal of sin, the restructuring of your heart. Let, let me give you an illustration that is a little closer to home. How many of you realize today in America, we don't have a mandatory military draft? Our military is 100% voluntary. We don't have a mandatory draft anymore. People voluntarily give their life to put themselves in harm's way. Voluntarily give their life to sacrifice for others so that you and I don't have to against our will. You know, we have a, a young man right now, Aaron Verger, one of our dear church members, leading a group of men over in Afghanistan. This week, they've had somebody shot. They had an explosion last week. A, a young man in his unit lost his legs. I mean, this is real life. This is what we deal with as a church pastoring in North County. And when we talk about the military and we give thanks to the military and gratefulness and we, when we show our love and concern for the military, how many of you know that makes us feel good as people? You know, there's a sense of joy, a sense of pride, a sense of comfort that when we stand up here and say, let's give, a, let's, let's give an applause to our military and let's just let them know how much we appreciate them this morning. That makes us feel good. Why? Because of the substitution of it, the voluntariness of it. They're giving themselves so that we won't be forced to. Now, if that's how you feel when you give thanks to the military, how much more should you feel when you think about Jesus Christ? How much more should that ignite you with fire, ignite you with passion? If you'll feel good when you give a clap offering to thank the military, how much more should you feel about Jesus Christ? And then the last thing, quickly, that the gospel will do in your life is it will produce the reversal of your values. It'll restructure your heart, it'll remove your sin, and it will reverse your values and your value. It'll reverse your values. Look at, go on in Isaiah 54 with me. Verse 11, O storm-battered city, troubled and desolate, I will rebuild you with precious jewels and make your foundations from lapis lazuli, which is sapphire. I will make your towers of sparkling rubies, your gates of shining gems, and your walls of precious stones. I will teach your children, and they will enjoy great peace. You will be secure under a government that is just and fair. Your enemies will stay far away. You will live in peace, and terror will not come near. Imagine a city like this for a moment. Imagine this. This city is going to be absolutely militarily and politically secure. I mean, look at the materials they're using to build this city. The, the, the strongest materials known to man, the most precious uh, stones. This is going to be absolutely secure militarily as a city. city's going to be economically prosperous. 
I mean, look at the costliness, these precious stones, these sapphires, these jewels. They're using it to, to build the city as building materials. So it's going to be a prosperous city. Not only that, think of the aesthetic beauty of this city. I mean, a city built out of jewels and sapphire. This is going to be one of the most beautiful cities. Well, what city is it talking about? It's talking about Jerusalem, but it's not talking about the Jerusalem we know today. How many of you realize after the Roman Empire destroyed Jerusalem and it was rebuilt, it doesn't look like this today. So what is it talking about? It's talking about Jerusalem of the future, the new Jerusalem. We talked about it last week, Revelations 21.2. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. We're talking about this holy city, this new Jerusalem coming out of the clouds, this this rebuilt. God took a city that was in ruins, a city that had been destroyed, and he reversed the value of that city. Made it absolutely incredible. And that's God's plan, to renew the world, to reverse this world, to regenerate this world, to rebuild this world. That's why we're not going to a non-earth for heaven. We're going to a new earth for heaven. God wants to regenerate this planet. He wants to bring us back to the original state of the Garden of Eden so we can live all of eternity in a perfected earth. The new earth, the Bible says. The new Jerusalem, the Bible says. So how can we participate in this? Through the gospel. Not just in our afterlife, but here on earth. Think about it. Why is God always using these eunuchs and childless women throughout the Bible? Why did God choose Sarah over Hagar? Why did God choose the stupid kid Jacob out of his honorable brother Esau? Why did God choose his little runt David instead of one of his big strapping brothers? One of my favorite authors, Timothy Keller, he wrote it like this. Christ wins our salvation through losing. He achieves power through weakness and service. He comes to wealth by giving everything away. How many know that, that, that doesn't make sense? That's a reversal of our values. Those who receive salvation also are not the strong and accomplished, but those who admit they are weak and lost. Salvation, because it is achieved through weakness and received through weakness, pulls off a complete reversal of the values of this world in regards to power, recognition, status, and wealth. When we understand that we are saved by sheer grace in Christ, we stop seeking salvation in these things and recognition, status, wealth, and power. The reversal of the cross, the grace of God, therefore liberates us from the bondage of the power of the material things and worldly status in our lives. Listen to this line. The gospel, therefore, creates a people with an upside-down set of values, a whole alternate way of being human, racial and class superiority, accrual of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition. All of these things are marks of living in the world and to the opposite of the mindset of the people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. See, when you see what it costs God to remove your sin, when you truly understand the price of his grace, that it was costly, it was free to you, but it cost him dearly, it begins to restructure your heart. It begins to reverse your values. See, we live in a world that says, take, 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 and yet the values of Christianity are give, 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 give. See, it reverses your values. You look at everything differently. You don't yearn a life by what you can accumulate. You learn a life by what you can pour out. 
What if we were a church that had the gospel flowing freely through our lives? What if we were a people that had gospel self-esteem? You didn't look down on other people. You didn't have a holier-than-thou religious attitude because you understand what a sinner you are, but you also don't look down on yourself. You don't crawl around with a low self-esteem because you understand how loved you are. That's what gospel self-esteem is. It, It frees you from superiority and it frees you from inferiority. It frees you from both at the same time. Gospel self-esteem is when you can be incredibly humble and incredibly bold at the very same time. Why? Because he was so holy, he could not overlook your sin. But he was so loving, he couldn't punish you for it. And he pulled off the beautiful exchange. I want you to listen to this words of the song this morning and just meditate on this message for a moment. So ambitious, the 
What is that beautiful exchange? Go ahead and sit down with me just one more moment as we close. This is the beautiful exchange. You give God all of your life to receive all of his life. That's easy to figure out who wins in that one. That's the beautiful exchange. You surrender your life to God and God surrenders his life to you. What is God's will for your life? Jesus said it best in John 10, verse 10. He says, I've come to give you a rich, satisfying life. In every way, emotionally, physically. See, our hope is in him. We don't receive Christ because it's going to be easy. Because it's not, Christianity is not easy. It's tough. You want to put God first in your life? It's tough. Why? Because you're going to be fighting against the values of this world. Why? We're reversing our values. We're restructuring our heart. It's tough to walk out the gospel. But it's blessed. It's blessed. And so I want to ask anyone here this morning, if everybody would just bow their heads in prayer for me. Pray for those that need to make the decision right now. If you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ this morning, it's very simple. You just know God's not first in your life. And you need him to be first. You know, again, God's not going to be second in your life. He's not going to be a part of your life. He, he's all or nothing. You know, God's not an accessory. You either build your life around him or you don't. But he's not going to fit into your Sunday and then... Monday through Saturday are yours. No, God's every day. God is your entire life. We build our entire life around him. Why? Because he didn't give part of his life on that cross. He gave his entire life on that cross. So if you need to make a decision this morning to put God first in your life, I want a chance to to pray with you and lead you in a very simple prayer. This is a moment between you and God. I want to simply see who you are so that I can say a prayer for you. But if everyone else would Continue to bow their heads in prayer for those making the decision. If you need to make that decision to make God number one in your life, to to have that beautiful exchange, to give your life to him and receive all of his life this morning. If that's you, you need that removal of sin so that you can have that eternal life, John 3, 16. Would you raise your hand right now so that I can pray for you? Raise your hand right now. Thank you. Who else? Thank you. Who else? The process is simple. Those of you that raise your hand, let me lead you in a very simple process on how to do this. The Bible says, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. I want to leave you in a process of believing in your heart. The first step of this process is I want you to invite God to have first place in your life. So in your own words, in your own way right now, just invite God to have first place in your life. Step two. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to remove your sin. Ask for the forgiveness. We all need it. None of us are perfect. And then step three, just say thank you. Thank you for the gift that he gave on that cross to give you the opportunity to live out the gospel to give you the opportunity to restructure your heart, to give you the removal of sin, to give you the ability to reverse your values. Just say thank you. And then the next thing I want you to do is today I want you to tell somebody. I want you to physically tell somebody you prayed that prayer this morning. Why? Because the Bible says you got to confess with your mouth. You believe in your heart, 
That's what the prayer was all about. Now I want you to confess with your mouth.